Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back. How much do you know about stem cells? How much do you know about what you can do with your stem cells? Well, we're going to find out all about that today. We're going to find it out from someone who's taken it upon himself to help people to bank their stem cells affordably so that they can take advantage of all the new amazing technologies that are in the pipeline being developed as we speak right now, whether it's for aesthetic purposes, for your hair, for your skin, for joints, for organs. There's almost no end of potential that is stored in our stem cells. The tricky thing is that those stem cells are aging with every passing day. And so what we want to do is we want to store our stem cells as soon as possible. And Dr. Drew Taylor, who is my guest today, who is the founder of Acorn Biolabs, took this on as his challenge, and he has come up with an amazing solution. So... If you're interested in learning more about this, number one, you're going to want to listen to the podcast. And then number two, you're want to go, you're going to want to go to acorn.me forward slash nat for a very special cell banking offer just for my listeners. And I'll tell you on the QT what they're going to do. They're going to give you three free months of cell banking, just if you're a listener of this podcast. The tricky thing is that this offer at this very minute is only available in Canada. However, you can also join the Acorn waitlist to be the first in line to have access in the U.S. and beyond as soon as they get it together. And they're in the process of, believe me, these guys have got it together. They're just in the process of growing and expanding as we speak. So go to acorn.me forward slash Nat, and you can either sign up for the waitlist or if you're lucky enough to be in Canada or you, you guys, if you're visiting Canada, this is like a 20-minute painless procedure in their lab. So enjoy the episode. Let me know what you think. Are you in? Are you out? What do you think? Do you think this is just the coolest thing you've ever heard? I think it's pretty cool for me. <laughs> okay. Welcome to the podcast, Drew Taylor. It is such a pleasure to have you here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Especially after you yanked a bunch of hair off my head yesterday, like an aggressive little bird. Poof. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hopefully it didn't feel like I was yanking. I, uh, I, I think we, uh, we take a lot of pride in the fact that it's a pretty simple, soft procedure and, and don't get a ton of complaints. So I, I'd love to hear how your experience was. Well, I was, actually, it was great. It wasn't painful. It was just, it was just odd. You know, it was, it's like pressure. Frankly, plucking my eyebrows hurts more than what you did. <laughs> yeah, no, we get that. We get that uh, a, a lot. And I think that you know, for us, it's, you know, a swift motion and in, in plucking the follicle leads to a better intact follicle, um, kind of like, you know, ripping off a bandaid um, and a lot less paint. So, you know, we've, I've done it on my three-year-old when he, well, he's four now, but he was three when I did it. And uh, he sat there watching cartoons and didn't complain. So no one's no really a good excuse. Amazing. Okay. So nobody knows exactly what we're talking about just yet. So we're going to wind it back and we're going to um, talk about your story because like so many people, you have this amazing story. So 
Why don't you tell us about how you got to where you are today and a little bit about your journey? <laughs> sure. Um, so I was always drawn to medicine. My father was uh, a physician and uh, that's what I wanted to be when I grew up and uh, following his footsteps. And, and I, I've tried my best. Um, my dad was actually also a professional baseball player, um, quite a, a successful one, um, won a couple World Series championships back in 1964 and was on the 1969 Amazing Mets. Wow. And so both medicine and baseball kind of in our family. And so that was really the focus of, of my childhood is, is both of those. I gravitated towards both. Uh, my brother, on the other hand, went down film and marketing and, and totally different path, but um, <laughs> he was the smart one. The double bar strategy. I'm not just going to go for one bar. I'm actually going for two bars. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it was, it was great. And, and I think the one thing that I learned was balance, right? From my father watching him kind of pursue both of these things. And again, I wasn't around when he went through his professional career, but certainly uh, afterwards, um, I, I learned a lot by looking back on, on what he had done. And so I, uh, I ended up going down to the University of Michigan uh, to both uh, play baseball and pursue my pre-medical coursework and focused on uh, molecular biology. Uh, molecular cell and developmental biology was, was the degree I did. Um, and so I played baseball at University of Michigan and, and I, I worked pretty hard on the academic side and I was able to, to leave Michigan with both my undergrad and master's done um, and was going to head off to medical school. Um, but uh, I also got offered to to sign with the Toronto Blue Jays. Um, so it was a little bit of a, a choice that to make. You're an achiever. <laughs> well, you know, I, I didn't make that last jump like uh, like my father into the major leagues, but I certainly gave it my all and, and had a good run. Um, ended up getting a little bit slowed down with uh, arm injuries. So I tore uh, my labrum and my supraspinatus, which led oh. to a eventual decline in, in my career. But it was a good thing I was focusing on academics the entire time through. Um, so I couldn't do the MD and baseball at the same time. That was, I was told it was impossible. I, I tried to convince them, um, but they would allow me to do a PhD uh, and play baseball. And so I, I enrolled at the University of Toronto in uh, a PhD in biomedical engineering mm -hmm. um, and was a full-time student, even though I was on the road for about eight months of the year, um, you know, playing minor league baseball. Um, so I, you know, it was a, it was a interesting, run would fly back and forth from Toronto, write exams, and then head back <laughs> onto the road and all of those good things. Um, but it really introduced me to kind of the innovative side around healthcare and some of the techniques that were in development in tissue engineering, right? And this is going back a, a, a little while, right? So this is, you know, in the 2000s. Wow. Um, and it really was an amazing introduction for me to um, see how the clinicians and the research scientists were working together um, in translational, you know, innovative tissue engineering strategies. And so that was an amazing experience for me and completely made my, uh, my decision to, to stick with that side of things very easy. Um, I didn't, uh, I, I almost went back to medical school and started over again, but after nine years of school and, and all of those good things, I think I was, I was ready to start to put that knowledge to work rather than, than, yeah. you know, well, and you know, we, all of these things unfold in our lives sometimes for a reason, right. And, uh, you're, you ended up exactly where you needed to be doing exactly what you needed to be doing, which is, it's the beauty of the universe we could say. So for people who don't necessarily know what tissue engineering is, can we maybe dig into that a little bit? Because it sounds interesting, 
So what is it exactly? And is it the kind of thing we can do now? Or is it the kind of thing that is more futuristic, possibly less futuristic than it might have been in the early 2000s? But where are we at on tissue engineering? Absolutely. So tissue engineering is a part of of regenerative medicine strategies, right? And regenerative medicine is essentially our endeavor that when you face any deficiency in a tissue, for us to have the ability to go in and replace those cells, that tissue, that organ with a new version so that your performance is equal to before you develop that deficiency. Okay. So for example, a torn labrum could potentially, or supraspinatus could potentially be regenerated and Absolutely. If we can correctly convince those cells or replace those cells um, to create the the tissues and the intermolecular structures and the collagen um, and all of those things that will form, you know, a viable intact labrum again, then we can actually restore the function of that labrum to before that tear actually happened. Interesting. Um, It's a little bit different than, you know, putting a suture in it and trying to like allow it to heal. It's actually thinking about replacing the damaged cells with functional, healthy ones again. Right. And it's also controlling even the type of collagen that's used because the body, when it's fixing something might use a different, there's many different types of collagen and, you know, getting the right collagen in there so that you establish the integrity, the pliability, the, all those things that you had the first time around so that it's not a scar per se, but it's just rebuilt. Absolutely. Um, that's, that's spot on. Uh, ultimately, you know, it led me down a path in, in focusing on this space in cartilage regeneration ended up being my specialty that I focused on during my doctorate and afterwards. Um, and, and it, that statement is probably more true for cartilage than almost any other tissue because we we want in weight-bearing cartilage, highland cartilage, we want it to be rich in type 2 collagen. Really, there's only type 1 collagen on the surface, um, you know, um, where it's concentrated. But type 2 is really what you want to be pervasively throughout that cartilage. And unfortunately, when our body heals, it creates a scar tissue in those areas um, that is, you know, higher with type 1 collagen and, and almost absent in type 2. And it's not the right ratio for performance in a weight bearing joint. Um, So that's really, you know, one of the things is not only having healthy cells, but having cells that function in the, in the right purpose in the right place and make sure that they make all of the the things that are going to make a healthy structure in that area. And so tissue engineering is a segment you know, of regenerative medicine, where we're really focused on putting all those pieces together and, and creating a tissue, um, you know, all the way up to, to one day when we're 3D printing human organs. Um, and, and I would say that there are certainly elements of tissue engineering that are available today. Much of it is going to be coming in the future. Um, but, you know, regenerative medicine, you know, even right now, it's very popular in in sports medicine and the aesthetic industry for uh, platelet-rich plasma injections. And so this is essentially taking part of your body, your blood, um, spinning it down and getting rid of those useless red blood cells for this purpose and having this concentrated uh, plasma as well as um, platelets and growth factors and nutrients and all of these elements that are going to help you fast forward that recovery and injury uh, recovery process and then putting that right at the area where you need that recovery to happen. Right. And so, you know, providing that is, is one of the first things that we've really seen that has become widespread in the world of regenerative medicine. But it's limited. 
still because PRP can't particularly do all the things like it can it can take us to a certain level, but clearly it's not the whole story. Just no, yet. no. And, and, you know, I, I think that it'll be always stepping stones towards that full story. Right. And we'll make lots of, of you know, incremental increases towards you know, perfection and, 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 uh, improvements, but, um, it is a fantastic start that has, um, you know, a lot of people have received benefit from. And, and I think sure. that, you know, there's a lot of things that really PRP has put a spotlight on. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest ones is that you're taking part of your body to help heal another part of your body. Yeah. yeah. And so the health of you as an individual is going to be inherently quite important as a baseline on, on what kind of benefit you're going to get from that product, because we're not manufacturing, uh, you know, chemical compounds to create pharmaceutical drugs in a lab. When we do these things, we're actually harnessing the power within yourself. Yeah. And so that's now the limiting factor. That's amazing. And that's, I mean, if that doesn't move people towards wanting to be healthier, I don't know what does. So, okay. So you got your PhD. And then what? Because there were a few other stepping stones between PhD and you sitting in that chair or yesterday plucking hair out of my head. So let's <laughs> let's continue on our journey towards the present day. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I was I, I faced another decision because, you know, I was always in my, since my childhood thinking about um, going in, and becoming a, a MD, a physician. Right. So I. Um, I did reapply to medical school, was accepted again, you know, ended up having to rewrite my MCAT because enough time had passed. So I was quite committed towards it all. Um, But after I, you know, defended my thesis and and was making the decision to go back to medical school, I was also offered a position at a venture capital firm here in Toronto. And so again, I had uh, another kind of crossroads decision to make. Um, And after nine years of school and kind of wanting to start, um, you know, some other endeavors in my life and put this knowledge into, into use, um, you know, not to stop learning ever, but, um, I ended up deciding, uh, at, at that time to, to pursue that position at that venture capital firm. So it was Epic Capital Management here in Toronto. Um, it was a fantastic group and I learned a tremendous amount because my experience thus far had been really very much in the science, in the lab, in the clinic. Wow. And so I was uh, getting exposed to the other side of, of how it all happens from a business and an operation standpoint. And so, so it was wait, wait, uh, time out. How, yeah. how does a venture capital group come around to recruiting a pre-med or like a PhD in science uh, yeah. and a potentially med student to go join a venture capital. I mean, again, now I'm, I'm, I'm counting three bars here. So. <laughs> well, I think, I think that, um, you know, it depends on what their focus is, right? So Apple capital had had a really successful history of, of running uh, uh, hedge funds, right. And yeah. looking at um, investments into publicly traded companies and was embarking on developing a series of venture capital funds that were more focused on, on privately held companies um, at earlier stages in development. And in doing that, it puts a lot of emphasis around the evaluation of the technology Mm. as opposed to these companies that are at some point of scale and you can, you know, look at EBITDA and revenues and a bunch of other metrics to see, you know, how you think that they're going to continue to progress. This is a lot of looking at a concept and an idea and where that fits in with um, technology, the health system in general, who's the end user, what are the limitations for them to actually reach the end user complications, competition, all of these different things. And so, um, you know, very, I think, uh, 
uh, intelligently that group, um, um, you know, Dave and Scott wanted to build out that team. And so they ended up having myself and an MD, Dr. Gordon Chung, who's a neuroradiologist, um, join the group right. and uh, really provide the ability to do in-depth due diligence on, uh, on these companies um, that are before a stage where the financial kind of metrics are really at a point of, of being able to, to peg valuations around. Got it. Makes complete sense. All right. So now you're a venture capital dude. Now what? I'm a venture capital dude. Yeah. So, <laughs> and um, yeah, and look, it was an amazing run. We, we deployed uh, funding across 28 amazing, you know, endeavors across the Canadian healthcare landscape. Um, you know, number in today's number of those companies have gone public and, and, you know, it was really exciting to see them, you know, progress and develop and put that money to use. Ended up getting uh, really involved with a, a handful of them. And, you know, obviously had a lot of knowledge to contribute, but learned just as much back in return. Um, So awesome, um, uh, awesome position. And during during that role, I was actually getting to know a lot of individuals at the kind of tech transfer offices, the innovation hubs and all of these early stage kind of company creation models across Canada. And one of those was the University of Waterloo and their uh, incubation program uh, called Velocity. And so while I was... um, you know, at Epic, I ended up getting introduced to a company where um, the person who introduced us actually said, like, Drew, you got to meet this company. Um, they're literally working on a project that sounds identical to your PhD, as far as I can tell. And um, you should go meet them. So uh, I did. And uh, we hit it off very quick. It was, you know, very early stage you know, idea and some lab work going on and some really passionate younger individuals than me um, that, you know, one argument would be that they're more intelligent because they identified these these problems, you know, and started doing something about them earlier in, in their career than I did. Uh, but ultimately, um, they invited me in to work with them really closely. And so I really became kind of a mentor while I was, I was still, you know, full-time at Epic. And um, I was spending a lot of time with them. Um, and we ended up um, developing some really great strategies. And, and ultimately, the problem that they were trying to solve was the same problem that I identified when I was at Mount Sinai here in Toronto. Um, and that is that, um, unfortunately, as we age, you know, um, our cells do not perform nearly as well as they used to. Right. And so my experience way back then was going into the OR on patients that were coming in for arthroplastic surgery. So fake knees and fake hips. And I was going in and taking biopsies in the OR from these patients and bringing them back to the laboratory to see if in practice, we could grow out functional tissues that one day would be able to replace those metals and plastics. So instead of putting in these implants that will break down, that don't have good integrations with, with you know, bone or cartilage or other um, facets of our body, um, we could actually give them back their own tissues. Wow. And that way provide them with a lifelong resource that's able to even heal itself again and mm-hmm. respond to shear forces and stresses like natural tissue, um, as opposed to create these, these interfaces of metals and plastics and bone and cartilage that eventually will break down. Yeah. My husband has one of those. Okay. And you know, you can see it in his biomechanics. I mean, he's, he's gone back to being incredibly active. Like he plays hockey, he swims, which I think is what saved him. He cycles, you know, he's always been an athlete, but you can, but I can see that it's not, it's not fluid. So you lose that fluidity of movement and it's going to affect other joints and other aspects of his 
for sure. There's going to be things that you just biomechanics. Yeah. yeah things you, now, all of that said, it is a fantastic surgery. Sure. And the prosthetic that we, that we have and, and the companies that are making some of these prosthetics are helping lots of people live a much higher quality of life. For sure. There's still limitations to it. And they only last, you know, 15 years, maybe the first one, and you're going to have to have it replaced. And so if you have these done at an earlier age, the amount of resi- revision surgeries that you're going to face in your lifetime mm-hmm. um, could be high and it gets harder every time because you've got lower bone stock now and you've already taken out. Now you got to take out more, right? It's just, it is a downward spiral to, if you live long enough, you're going to be back in a wheelchair. Right. Um, but that being said, <laughs> right, all of those things being said, now there's alternatives, right. To actually right. replace those tissues. So I think that, you know, that evidence of taking those cells back to the lab really showed me that when we were trying to functionally grow out the tissues for them, there's two big things that were contributing negatively against uh, our ability to do so. It was the age of the individual and how far down a disease state they had progressed. In this case, most commonly osteoarthritis. Right. Oh, right. So the actual tissue you're harvesting itself is compromised. It's compromised, right? It's, and it's diseased it's, and it's aged. And so if you have osteoarthritis, is all the cartilage in your body compromised? Because it will show up in certain joints. Mm-hmm. But let's say you have another joint. Let's say, I mean, I don't know if it's the same cartilage, let's say, but let's say in the ribs or in the spine or we have cartilage and cartilaginous joints in so many places in the body. If you found one that wasn't actually directly affected by the osteoarthritis, would it be any better than an arthritic joint or do we know it, that it would be, it would be better. There, there are systemic changes that, that happen, right? There's right. inflammation pathways that get activated and things when you have disease in other areas of bodies and it does influence us systemically. That being said, there are absolutely strategies even within that same joint to try to take tissues. And we did that, right? Like we were doing that and it still wasn't performing up, up to snuff. Right. So it's, it is one of those things where unfortunately <laughs> Um, I think age is a huge component, but then also layer on that, that, that those cells locally have at least entered disease, disease state that probably are global systemic changes to your body. Um, all of those things said, it's an inverse relationship that we're facing with regenerative medicine in the future. And that was the moment in my career that I actually sat back and was, was kind of sad, right? And a little contemplative for a moment because the, the future that I foresaw was strategies like this being successful and they're going to be successful in every area around our bodies. We are going to have amazing ability to regenerate and replace tissues down the road. There's already amazing things that we can do today, but we're going to be going to patients at their worst when they're experiencing that disease, usually later in life, right? We're not, we're not putting knee replacements and hip replacements in people, unless there's a congenital issue Mm -hmm. or a traumatic injury. So most of these wear and tear long-term and osteoarthritic cases, people are older. Yeah. And so now we're taking cells to try to fight that when their cells are at their absolute worst. So what I saw was us going to patients down the road and unfortunately having to say to them, yes, there are interventions, there are therapies, cell-based therapies that are for this specific thing that you have. But unfortunately, you're not a candidate because you're either too old or your cells are too degraded. And that was the future that I was 
you know, sad about. And that this group that I met was not willing to accept. And it's amazing because they were younger and oftentimes they were in that phase where they still think they're immortal. Right. But they, oh, they yeah. <laughs> had enough wherewithal to say, look at now's the time to do something about this. So uh, I was really inspired by them, um, joined the group and Stephen Tenholder and Pat- Patrick Percutis were, um, you know, just, I just gravitated towards this opportunity to really make a huge difference again and leverage all of those learnings that I had um, during my PhD and afterwards at Mount Sonic. And so um, we got to work, right? I was going in spending time in the lab with them. We were, you know, doing experiments. We were, we, what we really identified was with new technologies that exist today, we actually, you know, we actually theoretically have the ability to treat any disease. So the tools exist. Hmm. It's just now about doctors, physicians, and scientists around the world taking those tools and applying them in their areas of expertise to develop therapeutics against them. And so we've seen this before in other industries, right? And I hear a lot, people talk about stem cells. We've had, you know, we've known about stem cells for decades. Why aren't stem cells in every hospital helping every condition, right? If these, they are this miracle. Um, And I, I, you know, usually talk about other like technological advances like flight, right? You know, flight was discovered in the early 1900s. The first flight was like a hundred feet, right? And it took four decades and the development of other incremental tools that allowed us to harness flight for the first commercial flight to actually cross the Atlantic, 40 years, right? So, you know, we're in that phase right now where the tools have been developed and the two big ones that you may have heard of both, you know, the ability to to reprogram cells. So the creation of iPSCs, as well as CRISPR, cut and paste for the human genome. And so these two things have really allowed us to, one, create any cell type we want and any amount of that cell type that we need from an adult human cell, right? It was first done in an adult skin cell. And so now we can take an adult skin cell and create a billion liver cells, right? That could one day form a full organ, right? So this, that, I mean, an amazing technology. Yeah. Discovered in 2008, was awarded the Nobel Prize by uh, 2012. That's the fastest turnaround time of a Nobel Prize award in all of human history for very good reason. Like this was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, CRISPR, you know, took a little more time to award the Nobel Prize, mostly because there was some discrepancy around patent filings and who, who did it first and all what? of these different things, <laughs> a bit of a race. And yeah. there's a fantastic book on it that I suggest people read. It's, it's captivating, but what book, what book, what book? I have to, I have to, um, Walter Isaacson, uh, Walter Isaacson is, is the author. Um, okay. Well, I can put it in the show notes if it comes okay. when Walter uh, Isaacson's cult code breakers, code breakers. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So it, it is, um, it's a fantastic book and I suggest people read it if, if they're interested in the story behind it, because it, it is quite captivating, but, um, ultimately we now have cut and paste for the human genome. So editing in and out disease, right? Or hopefully just out um, and then back in properly functioning code uh, is now possible. Very powerful, right? And lots of ethical considerations and conversations have have emanated from around this. Um, And there's some some things that we probably don't have time to to dive into today that have gone on uh, to put a spotlight on that. But ultimately, those two technologies have allowed us to think about creating the functional code needed for health, as well as the cell type and the number of cells that we need to give that back. So that's why I say, you know, and it's a bold statement, but it's absolutely true. We theoretically now have the tools to treat any disease. Wow. Over the decades to come, 
we are going to see scientists and physicians and doctors around the world solve them one by one. Hmm. Okay. That's them's big words, my friend. It's a big yeah. problem. So let's, let's move on. We're yeah. still not sitting in that chair just yet and what we're actually going to talk about today. So right. next, next stepping stone. This is a fascinating story though. You need to write a book. So carry on. <laughs> I don't know. Not yet. We, we have lots of, lots of work to do before the yeah, podcast. Yeah, lots of work before. We don't want to sidetrack you from what you're doing right now. However. <laughs> so ultimately, the, the big problem is how do we capture healthy cells and make yeah. sure that you've got them for your lifetime as a resource? Because if the next generation of therapeutics, the starting material is not going to be a chemical compound, it's going to be your own cellular content. How do we make sure that you have your best secure? And that's ultimately the problem that Acorn has been trying to solve. Right. And, and it's, it's a big challenge too, because we can get cells from the human body. Now it's exciting because these new breakthroughs have allowed us to be less particular about the cells that we focus on. Um, you know, but it is pretty cost prohibitive historically to have your cells banked, right? You're drilling into Ilya Crest and harvesting bone marrow. Um, mm-hmm. There's been some endeavors with, with mixed results uh, around adipocytes and, and harvesting fat through liposuction. Um, there are uh, strategies out there to try to get at cells, but uh, um, ultimately they're fairly invasive, extremely cost prohibitive. And one of the solutions that Acorn wanted to really create was an economic way for people to have access to this. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, you know, out of Canada. So, you know, healthcare in our minds is a basic human right. And just because Love this that. is preventative healthcare, it doesn't mean that necessarily uh, we want people to only, you know, only have access to it if they have gobs of money to spend. So we really wanted to make a very simple, elegant solution for people to capture their live cells that are appropriate as inputs for these things down the road. And we focused on this amazing structure that is quite quite evident. We can see in both of our, uh, our videos here that we've got lots of them at, uh, you know, at our disposal, but the hair follicle. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Like, I mean, how cool to look at the hair follicle rather than go digging into our bone marrow, which hurts like crazy and is invasive. Like it's so invasive and adipose. And so, and then there's the quality of the stem cell as well. Right. Which we're going to talk about. Yes. Yeah. We can, we can absolutely talk about qualities of stem cells and, and, you know, not every stem cell is created equal. Exactly. Um, Yeah. So So, what made you think of the hair follicle? Well, it's this amazing mini organelle, right. That almost was designed to at some point leave. Right. So we have cycles in our hair follicles where they go through different phases and we're constantly shedding. We lose about a hundred, over a hundred hair follicles every day that go Mm -hmm. through the cycle. Right. And then new ones come up. And uh, some people lose that war over time because it happens less efficient, efficiently and all of those things, right? So we do lose follicles, you know, progressively throughout our lives. But they are this amazing mini organelle that is harvestable, painlessly, non-invasively, you know, no OR can be done very simply, not even by a doctor, right? You can use yeah. and other people for this. So, um, you know, one day we think we'll be doing it to each other as families, right? With with the ability to just order a kit at home and it arrives and, and you go through it. Yeah. So um, it also has some really amazing scientific attributes to it as well. So the hair follicle does come with a pluck and you end up getting this bulge, this cluster of cells around it, not with every pluck, but you get them. And that cluster has actually two cell types, two different germ layers, right? You've got keratinocytes, 
Mm-hmm. And you've got also fibroblasts in high concentrations in that group. And these cells are, are different germ layers. And so you end up kind of thinking about the utility, not just with reprogramming, but with actually using those cells with inter, intermediary reprogramming steps that, you know, create mesenchymal stem cells, um, you know, the cells that are a part of the keratinocyte portion of those cells have actually been able to, without, you know, reprogramming, been converted and perform like neurons. So there's some amazing work around these cells. How? And really, <laughs> how? <laughs> we might have, uh, there's, there's We might probably, need a day. Okay, fine. We might need a day to go through the <laughs> protocol for that, but... Um, Wow. They're powerful cells. And so um, there's also this amazing cell type that's been called, um, you know, the HFS, the hair follicle specific stem cells. Yeah. These these cell types are are quite um, quite uh, have a high ability to proliferate and different differentiate into different cell types. So there is an adult stem cell or progenitor cell that is present in that population as it stands without reprogramming. Wow. Um, I have a question for you. So let's say, let's say you've got someone who can you use any hair follicle? Like let's say someone's bald. Can you use chest hair or less pleasant pubic hair or hair off their leg or their, for example, prefer areas that you're willing to show off at the beach, but yeah. Yeah. yeah, Well, and that's smart because probably those would hurt even more, but, um, Yeah, we're not going to go there. So, um, but you could use any hair follicle off from the body. Does it have to be the head? Is there, are there differences? Because the yeah, so there, there, there are differences, right? There's yeah. differences in the thickness of our, our actual hairs, right? Yeah. Fibers um, uh, at different areas of our body. And you do get different sized follicles, different cell volumes from them. Uh, ultimately, there's not a huge difference between hair follicles around our body, um, but what we focus on and what we ran all our trials around was the accessible area, the back of the scalp, pretty much ear to ear up to the crown. Yeah. Last place you lose hairs if you are going bald. Right. Right. Um, and we, we wanted to try to concentrate to make sure all the trials that we ran at the beginning in developing this technology um, were in a succinct area that we felt we would have access to unless you had, you know, um, you know, systemic alopecia. Right. Right. Let's say someone doesn't have alopecia, but they've, they are totally, can they be totally and completely bald without any hair back there, but still have hair on their arms or their chest or their legs? It's possible. Most people do have hair that grows, right? Um, You know, very few people, unless, unless, you know, we're talking about those alopecia cases where there's been like, you know, the hair follicle loss and death, you know, you know, across their body um, will grow cyber hair around the ear, around the back. Most people choose that are at that stage to just shave it all, right? And so um, we have a bunch of clients that shave their head. Yeah. And then get banged at Acorn, they just stopped shaving their head for a week and then came in, right? And that's it. Uh, we had one individual that forgot that uh, to, to not shave their head. And then <laughs> they realized, oh my gosh, my appointment at Acorn is tomorrow. Um, but they had a beard and pretty high sideburns. And so it's... a those hairs hurt a little bit more than the back of the head, but well, it's, um, it's the nerves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, most people have this opportunity. That's, that's not to say a hundred percent. Hey guys, I just want to interrupt this podcast very quickly to thank our sponsor today. And that is Oxford HealthSpan. Oxford HealthSpan makes primidine, which is by far the best spermidine supplement on the market. Spermidine is an amazing anti-aging supplement. 
it hits six of the nine hallmarks of aging. So it helps us to age better. And in some ways, it even helps to turn the clock back on certain processes of cellular aging. I highly encourage you to give it a try. It's great for sleep. It's good for your hair, skin, and nails. And a whole bunch of other amazing benefits. They've got some great, great information about the supplement and what it can do for you on their website, which is you can find at primadine.com. And if you decide you want to give it a chance for yourself, give it a try, then you're going to want to use promo code BIONAT1515, and that will get you 15% off your purchase. Thanks for listening. And now let's get back to the show. All right. So now we've identified what we're getting we've potentially identified some of the potential that this whole, so wait, really what you're doing at Acorn Biolabs is, is giving us the ability to freeze time wherever we are at that time right now, which gives us, and I don't remember if it was you or if it was Andre who said to me, you are as young today as you are ever going to be. So chop, chop. We both, we both say that frequently. <laughs> yeah. So get on the bus and let's get started kind of thing. And so, yeah, it would have been better 10 years ago, but it, it is what it is today. And I think we were talking about this before the podcast, ultimately being in a better state of health and maybe, or maybe we discussed in earlier in this podcast, the better state of health you're in, the better the potential, hopefully of these cells, although nobody's really, you know, we haven't, you, you haven't done all the research. Like we were asked, I was asking you earlier, do you think that somebody's biological age, if okay. it's much younger than the chronological age, might that have a positive impact on the quality of the stem cells of the cells that you're going to get through this harvesting mechanism? And the, and the answer right now is, I mean, we don't know, but if you can do that, then what the heck may as well stack the odds in your favor kind of thing. Yeah. Like ultimately it's tough to pinpoint like specific qualitative pieces of evidence to say, um, which is going to be better in, in a case of you're living an unhealthy lifestyle and banks your cells. And then three or four years later, you turn it around and you're living a much healthier lifestyle, potentially reversed your biological age, um, or at least start, it slowed down its progression. And then, you know, are those cells later? There's two, con- two influences there, right? Because not every health metric necessarily is, is a perfect encapsulation of just age, right? Sure. So, um, you can live a very, you know, healthy lifestyle, um, but you're still getting older. Sure. Well, yeah, time, 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 time is marching on. Change. So, yeah. um, you know, our general piece of advice until we have really specific metrics around tracking the health of an individual over time, which we are working on um, to, to help provide even more color around that. Um, right now, it's just the earliest possible time point that you have to bank yourselves to do it. Yeah. If you are able to go on a health kick or turn uh, some behaviors around and get healthier, we absolutely will rebank yourselves. Um, you know, it's ultimately, this is your resource and you know, when you're feeling better, listen to your body and understand uh, at the same time, you know, the time that has passed between when you banked yourselves and today, you'll never get back. Right. So. Okay, cool. So the, so the short answer is, Earlier, we know for sure is better, but if you're earlier and sick and in, in a couple of years time, you're, you've turned your health around completely, there may still be value in harvesting those cells. We just don't know what trumps it. Is it time or is it state of health? Probably yeah. both are better, but we just don't know yet. Yeah. And because we're fairly affordable, we, yes, we, have, you can absolutely, both. Yeah, we have actually 
had people that have just come in and rebanked and said, you know what, I've had, I, I've had a really great, you know, year, um, or however long of a run and, and they want to bank their cells. Like they focused during COVID of, of just getting in, in crazy shape. Right. Yeah. I, I really commend those people because that wasn't easy to do. And they've come back in now that we've reopened or, you know, after the shutdowns and, and they've rebanked their cells and that's great. And so do they toss the younger cells out? No, they've kept them. But cause I was going to say, you kind of want to hedge your bets, right? Yeah. If you, yeah. if you, in a perfect world, you kind of keep the young cells and the older health, well, older cells from the healthier you, and then down the road as these technologies evolve, then hopefully it can be assessed yeah. is there an advantage to using one over the other. Yeah. They're your cells. We'll do what you want, you know, with them. So if you want to throw them away, I can't, I, I can advise no, you, not to, sure. but, but if you want to, but they've, they've all kept them so far. Okay. So let's, I mean, at this point, people may be scratching their heads going, okay, this is all very cool and exciting, but what exactly is it that you guys do? So we now know that you pluck people's hair, but you personally probably don't do this all day, every day. (laughs) I'm guessing you have bigger fish to fry. I just got lucky. Um, But, um, but let's talk about what is, so Acorn Biolabs, what the business that you're in, which you were, I think like you were so brilliant in picking because there's so much opportunity, right? You could have gone so broad and you decided, no, we're going to pick this lane. This is what we're going to do. We're going to do it really well. And we're going to basically give people the ability to now in the future, tap into all of these amazing things that are coming down the pipe. Yeah. That, that, and, and that's pretty it succinctly. You probably said it better than me. Ultimately what we do as a service for any individual that wants to is to freeze time on a portion of your cells so that they don't age. They're safe and secure. We do it in a way where we've got built-in redundancies. We split your sample into four different vials, store two of them in one tank, two of them in a separate tank. Um, We do viability analysis before they are frozen down so that we know you have live cells. And we even do live dead assays, membrane integrity, to really make sure that you've got the best possible cells, you know, waiting for you for the future when you're going to use them. Right. And you were, we were, when I did the tour of the lab and you know what guys, I'll see if I can maybe pick some of those pictures and include them in the show notes, but I'm not making promises. You might have to go to my Instagram account at some point, but, um, but you were talking about even, I mean, you have so many redundancies built into your lab. So first of all, it's a super secure lab. Number one, number two, it's in a hospital and a major hospital at that in a major city, which means that if anybody's going to lose power, you got that hospital will be pretty close to last, if not the last to lose it. Um, Thirdly, the way that you have your nitrogen system set up, you have nitrogen tanks on hand so that you were telling me that if power goes out, you've got enough nitrogen to keep everything frozen for a month. And if that's not enough still, Two of those tanks that are going to be holding half of your gold or harvest or whatever we want to call it is going to be on a separate site. Like you're going to be opening a second site so that now we have we're spread out. Yeah. So we're, we're going to be doing that through a partner um, and we're going to have essentially a uh, that tank in another facility in another city. So um, ultimately, you'll be you'll be secure from, you know, local I don't know, natural disasters, I guess, is, is probably the worst case scenario we're talking here. Yeah. Um, and, and it's important because, you know, we believe that these cells could save your life one day. So we treat them like they will and make sure that uh, they will be accessible to you. Um, and we, we've tried to think about everything. 
Yeah, I'd say you've, you've done a pretty good job. Um, so let's talk about a little bit the path of using those stem cells in terms of what can I do today, if anything, or when, you know, like one of the things we talked about when we first talked was possibly some of the technologies that are the furthest along, if you will, or the closest to be that we could bring to fruition are more on the aesthetic side. So the facial skin regeneration, which, you know, okay, I'm vain. I'll admit it. I'm down. Um, <laughs> or hair, hair regeneration again. So for people who are losing their hair, how close are we to that? Are these the first things you think are going to be coming online? And then there's like, what's the medium term look like and the long term, which we've kind of touched on, I think. But, you know, Andre, your marketing director was told me about these bladders that were yeah. grown in the States on compassionate ground. So I'm going to stop talking in a second and just let you answer one of the 75 questions I just threw your way. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's think about like the uses of cells. So if we think about us, about cells in general, right? Yeah. Like they're, they're, they, they all come from the same place, right? Sperm eats egg at some, uh, at, you know, at one point, and that leads to the development of an entire human being. Right. right? So at some point there's all that one base and Ultimately, that is the premium embryonic stem cell that has been talked about and, and ethical considerations against experimentation with and all of these different things. Well, one of the amazing things about developing IPSC technologies, right, reprogramming, was we were able to take a cell that's fully differentiated from an adult and turn it into that cell all the way at the top, that embryonic stem cell which wow. is what the power of an IPSC is, right? Crazy. So no ethical yeah. concerns. It's your own cells that we're doing it with. It's not from a donor. It's, it can be you, right? So very amazing. Um, but cells are really like a mountain, right? And that embryonic stem cell is sitting at the top. And as it decides what it, it's going, its fate is going to be, it rolls down. It starts rolling down one of the faces of that mountain. Okay. And so at the beginning, it decides on which germ layer, and we've got three faces to that mountain. And then now you've picked a face. So there's, you know, another kind of window or one face of that mountain of possibilities it can become. You've got mesenchymal stem cells, which are partially up that mountain and uh, umbilical cord stem cells, which are, are partly up another side of that mountain. Um, you know, you've got all these different types of stem cells that are accessible and the dipocytes are, you know, closer to the bottom, but up, up a bit. Right. And so you have you have these opportunities to create, I guess, a multitude or a multipotent amount of cells from one of these things that is a little bit higher up on the mountain. But at the bottom, we have all our final cell types. Right. Skin, bone, liver, pancreas, like the definitive cell of what you've become the faith that you want to be. Okay. And so from a use of the cells that we're harvesting, you can say we can reprogram them and they can go up to the top of that mountain. Okay. But those things are going to take longer to come to fruition as a therapy because you're now creating a stem cell and you're introducing complications of, well, you got to make sure that you're going to create the cell type that we're going to put into an area that we want it to be in. Right. right. So there's more, more like you don't risks. end up with like cartilaginous need material on your face. No. Yeah. Or liver. Yeah. Or the, 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 Anything, the, yeah. the ultimate liver spot. <laughs> right. Exactly. So so like the, the drastic kind of word for that is is a teratoma. Right. Which is right. basically. Yeah. Anyway, um, not not a good thing. Um, so no. what we're going to see happen first is the utility of the primary cells of what we're harvesting. Right. So these. HFSCs, the keratinocytes, and the fibroblasts used directly 
in utility without having to change that cell type. Okay. Okay. And so what these cells do is fibroblasts are fairly pliable. They can be um, very rich in, in production of type two collagen and other types of collagen. So you can actually, you know, use those cells and, in, in, in and there's a lot of work going on in the sports injury world, soft tissue mm-hmm. sports injury worlds for application. So I think that's going to be one of the first cases because programming is not involved. You can coax them, you know, um, into those areas. But when you think about skin and aesthetics, it's probably the closest because we're taking the cell types that you're losing. Wrinkles are literally just the loss of cell number and cell volume, right? The the actual like, you know, rigidity of these cells, right? They're shrinking on us. Um, Well, and, and actually, you know, what I, what I've learned recently, which was somewhat heartbreaking because, you know, we spend all this money on our skin, but actually the real aging process is the loss of is the fat pads falling. It's the structure under the skin that's degrading, but that the, the, you know, the, the, what's the word I'm looking for? The infrastructure. (laughs) A lot of that, a lot of that is run um, really um, by your fibroblasts. So it is. So like the muscles, the bone, the, 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 the scaffolding that's holding up the skin. It's that stuff that's sliding and degrading, right? Yeah. I mean, the bone is there unless you, you've got like a, a more serious difference. Like a big thing. Yeah. Right. But if you're just talking about kind of the aesthetic side of it, um, yeah, our musculature is not as tight, right? Yeah. The fibroblast layer is getting thinner. Yeah. Um, and so you end up getting the creation of these crevices, right? Because of the loss <laughs> of cellular volume and, and things, right? Which we call <laughs> <Yeah>. wrinkles, <laughs> yeah. it's, but it's happening in every tissue in our bodies, right? Like, yeah. like like we just see it in our faces most clearly. Um, and it also, our faces take a lot of punishment. It's the part that's most exposed to ultraviolet light and all of these different things. So it, it takes a bit of a beating. Um, all of that being said, we're harvesting cell types that are both the, the base layer as well as the superficial layer of your skin. Right. Okay. So I think that what we will end up seeing is the application of, of therapies in aesthetics come first from the cell types that we collect specifically. That may not be the same in, in other areas um, or, or other approaches of, of different cell types that, that can be banked. Um, but in ours, certainly, I think that'll be the first step. And how um, close do you think we are to that? Do you have any idea? Like, do you know companies that are, I mean, there's got to be people working on this stuff already. It's already being done in humans in, in the trial state. Yeah. <laughs> So, oh yeah. No, there's been lots of, lots of really interesting animal models that a lot of the work has been based on. There's actually one fantastic study in North Carolina that was done um, that showed uh, essentially banking your younger skin cells and then um, they artificially induced aging of the skin um, uh, with ultraviolet light to induce both sun damage and wrinkle formation and then re-injected younger skin cells and compared that head to head with a multitude of other therapies that are currently widely available in aesthetics clinics. And um, just putting in younger skin cells subdermally worked better than anything. Wow. So cool. So cool. So it's imminent. It's, it's around the corner. Um, And then, so long-term are we talking like, or so sports injuries, so soft tissue, let's say like tendons, ligaments, cartilage, that kind of stuff. Um, maybe you'll get that MLB career after all. Um, uh, I think I'm done, but <laughs> who knows? We'll see. We'll see to bigger and better things. I know we got, I got you. Um, actually, you know what? I mean, in, if, if we believe that the universe 
opens doors that we need open. I think to do that, sometimes it has to close doors that need to be closed. Yeah. Um, so maybe you were just gently guided along a certain path to get you to sitting here today. Um, well, my, my father said something to me that, that um, resonated with me and will for the rest of my life. Um, I was pretty upset when my baseball career ended. Sure. Right? I, got the interview, I battled back. I was trying to make that last jump. I just had lost velocity, right? I didn't have that zip on my fastball anymore. And so, it, you know, the writing was probably on the wall, but, you know, it took me a while to kind of really accept it. And so I kept on trying to see how, how much I could improve and get back. And when it was evident, and so I, I ended up after the Toronto Blue Jays doing a very brief stint with the Phillies. Um, and after spring training in, oh, I can't even remember which year. It was probably 2009. Uh, I ended up coming home and was talking with, with my father. And anyway, he, he, he saw, obviously, I was pretty upset. And he said, look, Drew, um, it would have been fine if I wasn't a baseball player. But I personally feel it would have been a tragedy if I hadn't become a physician. Because the amount of people that I've been able to help, you know, or have an influence on or be a positive, you know, thing in their life, um, you know, that I, I get that from, from medicine. And so, you know, baseball was fantastic and, and, a, and a great worthy endeavor. Um, but if my father had to choose, right, a career, it would have been medicine. Yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. Okay. All right. Back to medium term and long term. Yes. <laughs> so the short term is the aesthetics, the hair, the, the easy stuff, right? It's the uh, it's the cells we're harvesting. So in terms of medium and long term, like regenerating of organs. So there, I believe it was Andre who told me about these bladders that were grown using stem cells. Yeah. So they use they use a biopsy of bladder cells for those, right? And oh, so, so they actually use bladder cells. Yeah. So it's invasive. So if they go in and they take a biopsy of that bladder and then they take those cells out and it's amazing. Like this is fantastic. This was done at Wake Forest University and they were able to do it. I think, I think they're up to 12 patients that they've done this in now, I believe. And, you know, these are individuals, one had spina bifida that got a fair bit of, of, you know, like coverage around, around that case, but they were able to, in elements of tissue culture and 3D printing, reconstitute functional bladders outside of the body from a biopsy of their own cells, and then implant those bladders in individuals that did not have the capacity to control urination and restore it. So the whole idea of regenerative medicine, right? Like taking- I, Oh my God. Restoring function to before that disease state or that injury happened, success. And this is in an organ, Right now, albeit it is not a life-saving organ, we're not in a heart or a liver or a kidney yet, but oh my gosh, we're, we've implanted as a scientific community and as a group, right? Like these individuals down there implanted bladders in people and restored that function. Yeah, we're talking baby steps here, but we're talking like still an organ that's receiving, um, you know, nerve nerve Im impulses. It's like, it's still complex. Like it's not all of these issues, right? Like it, yeah. it's incredible. It, it really is incredible. Um, and, and it's super exciting and it opens up the possibilities for other groups to really start saying, okay, well, my expertise is in kidney. My expertise is in heart. How can we apply some of these, these, you know, learnings and leaps forward to, to my area. Right. And so this collaboration that we're seeing going on right now, especially it's fast forwarded 
during COVID, believe it or mm-hmm. not, right? Because um, everybody's stuck in their labs. <laughs> everybody's stuck in their labs. And I think that there's just been, you know, for a lot of the scientific community, even this heightened sense of, of trying to perform and advance for, for the greater human good and, and, and the protection of people and their health. And it's just put a spotlight on, on us thinking about our own health and our own mortality because of, of honestly, all this disease and death around us. So, um, you know, sometimes a moment like this, um, you know, just hone in that attention and that focus. But um, it is, it's, it's been really uh, amazing to watch some of the progress that has come so quickly here. There's a group in uh, um, Laval and Sick Kids Hospital that has taken biopsies of skin cells from mostly younger individuals, um, but they've taken those cells, keratinocytes and fibroblasts, and grown out sheets of skin to treat people after severe burns. So they've actually grown skin sheets in a lab, put them on people to cover severe burns where they burned off their skin. So all they need is a little patch. A little patch. Like a little patch, like some patch somewhere that didn't get burnt. And yeah, they it's a little going. punch biopsy that they take, right? So you end up getting this kind of like round little core of cells, very similar to hair follicle, right? In, in a lot of ways, right? This core. Yeah. Of cells. Um, and ultimately, that's what they leverage to grow this out. Now, that's an invasive procedure. You have to actually suture that, that wound shut because it does leave a little kind of core mm-hmm. that's missing. Um, and you have to have healthy tissue to start with. And, you know, most of the individuals in the study, if not most, all of them I would classify as younger. Yeah, I think the the oldest was in their 40s, which is pretty young, right? So um, we start to think about leveraging these types of things for older individuals where we know there are deficiencies in the performance of those cells. Um, You know, if you bank your cells and you Mm -hmm. end up having an injury later in life, those cells that you banked at a younger time point could be extremely valuable in some of these, these, you know, traumatic injury treatments because you are able to grow skin, right? While that patient is probably in a hospital recovering, you can start that, that process of growing out those cells immediately. And as they continue to heal, be able to accelerate that um, and cover that, those areas. So very interesting. I mean, other applications like this include diabetic foot ulcer, you know, mm-hmm. uh, wound management and wounds that are, are not healing well in elderly individuals to have younger cells that are able to respond faster and stronger and grow quicker. It can be, that can be the tipping point in the scale for wound management. So we we're thinking about some of those things as the midterm, you know, applications that we see coming out. Um, but then, you know, when we look into the future long-term, you know, it's really your imagination. Yeah. Right? Like neurodegenerative disease, um, spinal yeah. cord for spinal cord injuries, like all the things, all, all the things that are. Things. So- I mean, there's a group in Tel Aviv that have 3d printed a miniature human heart. Yeah. It has the ability to beat, contract, right. Blood flow. Um, it is about the size of a rabbit's heart, but I mean, how amazing is it that we're creating? Well, if you can make it little, if you can make a little one, you could theoretically make a big one. Like you've got all the parts. Like it's it's conducting electricity. It's beating. It's doing all the things. Yeah, and since they did that, there's been groups that have now you know really pushed forward vascularization technologies and just creating you know arteries and veins. And so these the and, you know capillaries, which is really complex. So I think that you know for these things, how do you put those back. Well, that's why a lot of the the endeavors are in 3D printing, because you can literally print these things, you know, cell by cell, right? And just put this together. But lung tissue, right, would be, especially in a world where people's lungs are getting compromised or hearts or whatever the case may be. So So one day, I think we in our lifetimes, we'll see the first 3D printed 
um, life-saving organ, like a heart or a kidney yeah. Yeah. Um, implanted into an individual. That is pretty mind blowing, really. Yeah. yeah. So another question that came to me um, is within, so a big power of this is using, is harnessing your own cells for yourself. But let's say in a situation, has anybody thought, I'm sure somebody's thought about it, but have you looked into what about uh, like your relative, like yeah. a parent to a child or a child to a parent or yeah. siblings. Like- yeah. So, I mean, we can get into a ton of detail here. Um, ultimately, unless you have your own cells, you're going to be on some level of immunosuppressants, which have okay. come with their own risks um, themselves, right? right. Which quite extreme, including, you know, death. So um, having your own cells is always best. Of course. Absolutely. Okay. There are amazing endeavors to try to create um, donor cells that don't incite the same immune response. Mm-hmm. But now you're introducing a danger because if something does go wrong, you are not identifying those cells as what's causing something wrong. Right. You, again, you're creating possibilities for not only you to form teratomas and tumors, but also not even know that they're not even have your, your body think they're normal. So, so there's a lot of complications. And and I think that, you know, what we're going to see in regenerative medicine is a variety of approaches. And a lot of people, um, you know, that are thought leaders and and actively working in this space, um, you know, are are working on some of these different areas. And I think most of them, um, I would, I would, I would say definitely most of them believe that it is going to be really a plethora of these different approaches that are going to come together. And there's going to be, you know, there are going to be allergenic, right? So the donor cells um, that are going to be appropriate in areas that, you know, we do have um, a, a, a lower immune response naturally in those tissues. Right. Right. So you know, immune, our immune distribution in our bodies is not um, equal across right. every area. And so there's going to be certain allergenic treatments that I think are going to be very viable in areas that, um, you know, have a level of, of, you know, immune protection already, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but it's going to be a multifaceted approach. And so there's certainly an immense amount of things that have like major benefits of having your own autologous cells. And it's, oh. and it's best. So if you can have that, that's going to be number one. And then we'll look to some of the alternatives. Um, and, and even one day, hopefully we'll solve some of the problems around universal cell lines for certain therapies where we do have that protection around the immune system. Um, but it's complicated. And sure. all these things that we're inducing to cells to try to mask them from the immune system, create their own complications themselves. Um, and there's going to be a time and place for them. Absolutely. Uh, but I think it's going to be in combination with all the autologous therapies using our own cells. And, and what we do see is, is the autologous ones are the ones that are available first. So if yeah. you're alive today, right. And you want to have access to these next generation things. I think our best defense is preparing for them by making sure we have the best source of our own cells ready for us. Amazing. So what's the youngest person and the oldest person cells that you guys are banking right now? <laughs> the, so, you know, we want to, we're harvesting hair follicles, right? And so most babies don't come out with a full head of hair, right? So, um, and also at that age, you know, you've got, you've got some time, right? You, you might know, want a, a little, a couple of years. <laughs> exactly. You can wait a bit. So the youngest is actually when we harvest, um, you know, my now four-year-old, but at the time three, um, the oldest is 83. 83. 83. Wow. 
Well, I mean, I guess if you're a reasonably healthy 83, if you were given the option to be that long term, better than degrading, yeah. you know so, what I mean? Like I was sitting here thinking, okay, let's say like I'm 57 right now, right? So let's say the cells we took can only regenerate 57-year-old skin or a 57-year-old whatever. When I'm 80, 57 is going to be looking pretty good. Damn good. <laughs> like, <wait. laughs> so, so I think ultimately, yeah, it's, it's the difference in time between when you leverage those cells and when you bank them. And for this 83-year-old, um, you know, their mindset was, I am physically healthy right now and, and I'm performing. Okay. Um, when I'm 93, I might not be. Yeah. And I'm going to look at that 83 and I'm going to be envious. Yeah. Right. So having, and, that, and when you think about it, 10 years of progress and development in the space that's happening so fast, exactly. a lot can happen in 10 years. So their mindset was, I want to be ready. And ultimately yeah. you feel like you're going to be around to see if these things come to light. The best decision you can make is to bank them and be prepared. Absolutely. I love it. All right. So I'm sure people at this point are madly Googling you guys. So <laughs> let's, let's talk about what's available, where it's available. Today, I'm so freaking happy to be Canadian, never mind in Toronto, because so often this stuff is happening somewhere else. And we're like looking around across the fence going, I want that. But you're right here. Toronto is a pretty cool city when it comes to stem cells. I'm just saying. (laughs) A long history of discovery and development. And and there are some amazing uh, companies developing the next generation of therapeutics right here. And, and, uh, you know, Toronto is a stem cell hub. Absolutely. Amazing. So let's talk about it. How do people access, who can access your services right now? From a cost perspective, I don't know if we even want to throw the numbers around, but like I, when you, when, when I first spoke to Andre and and we got to the part where I asked him, so what does it cost to do this? I'm sitting there bracing myself going, Oh my God, I'm going to have to sell a kidney or something and hope they can regrow it one day. Um, but nothing could have been further from the truth. So I don't know how much how detailed do you want to get about this? Yeah. Well, we, we kind of like to, to joke around that if you can afford, afford stranger things, you can afford acorn. Right. So, um, <laughs> you know, the, the onboarding collection, you know, fees really depend on, on where you go, right? If you're doing it at your physician's office, you know, if you're coming into to our our clinic, um, we've got partners that will come and do home visits, right? Nurse networks that will actually visit you at your home and do a curbside service. So it kind of depends on the upfront. Let's just say it's very accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're talking, yeah, three to four digits here. Like- and then it's, yeah, and then it's $16 a month, right? So it's it's a Netflix subscription. $16 a month. That's right. Oh my God. That's right. I was thinking the yearly as the monthly, but it's actually the monthly, yeah. the yearly, whatever I just said. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Um, all right. Uh, so, but we haven't talked yeah. about geography yet because you're still. We're Canadian. We're available in Canada right we're now. Here. Yeah. Um, we are developing and it's pretty exciting to watch people respond to it, but we're developing a list of people um, that are in areas where we're not there yet. Um, you know, people, we've got people that have, have joined it waiting and asking when we're going to be in, in cities in the Middle East and all over the world. But, um, you know, our next target will be available in the U.S. hopefully very quickly. And so we, uh, we've got a good list that's growing of, of the people that are going to have first access in the U.S. So if you are unfortunately not in Canada right now, um, you know, join that list, please, and, and get in line for access. And, and hopefully we'll be able to reach out to you really quickly here and let you know when we're available in your city. Um, in the meantime, right now, we've got access points in uh, Toronto, Montreal, 
Vancouver, um, and, and then we have home services elsewhere, right, where we've got clinic networks that will visit you. So we've, we cover, you know, Canada's a big, big place. Um, we cover as much geography as we possibly can. Best thing is, is just jump online and see if it's available in your area yet. Um, chances are, yes. Okay. And also, if you own a facility in the U.S., there may be possibilities of, depending on where you are and a whole bunch of other conditions, there may be a possibility of, I think you guys were talking about maybe sending a tech and doing a whole bunch of people in one day. Yeah. That, so, that could be a possibility or it's not, you're not quite... No, it's there. So some really innovative forward-thinking companies have actually created Acorn as part of their benefits package. Um, and so, yeah, so it's very cool. So we've worked with them to provide access to their employee base. And um, often others will jump on the opportunity when we come and visit them. And what we'll do is we have to kind of line it up over you know a couple of days in a row kind of thing. But um, you've got our full attention. We'll come in, get it done for, for your group or your network. And um and, and we can go anywhere with that. Fly those babies home. Okay, so there will be a special offer for people listening to this podcast. And to get that, we don't know what it is just yet at the time of recording. It'll be in the show notes. And if you skipped over my very long introduction, go back and listen to it because it'll be in the intro too. Uh, but the link to access it, whatever it is, or you could just decide to be surprised and just use the link, um, is acorn.me forward slash nat, N-A-T. And that'll be... A very special offer for you, the listeners, which is a super, super special. Yeah. Super special. Did we leave anything out? Is there anything I didn't ask you? I should have asked Drew. Like, you know, what? there's so much, so much fun stuff to talk about. I think we could probably talk for hours. So to, you know, we'll we, we'll circle back if stuff comes up. Well, I think that you guys are on a vertical traje- trajectory at this point. So I think it's reasonable to assume that over the next few months we might be able to fill another hour or so of content with all the yeah. things that are coming down the pipes. I'm yeah. just going out on a limb here. Totally. There's lots that we haven't talked about. Some of the, the diagnostic stuff that we're working on to give you some metrics around health of cells. We haven't talked about the research partnerships we have so that, you know, we're actually taking the cells that have gone through a process and taking them into different cell fates, uh, reprogramming them. So we've got a pretty robust R&D side that is exciting and fun to talk about um, if you're a nerd like me. So um, this is, I should have called this the nerd podcast because honestly, that's, (laughs) that's, this is what it's about. If you're not a nerd, you do not need to apply. It's all good. We love you and respect you, but you're going to want to move on. (laughs) So do you want to talk about any of those things? Because I could keep going. I don't No, that's, that's, that's you know, I'm going to cut it off now and save it for another yeah, day. See if, if people in the comments say let's hear more then great. Let's do it. But and then we'll do it. All right. It this, I, this I, fun. I have a feeling there will be questions. <laughs> so thank you so much. I mean, I'm so happy to have met you and thank you so much for your time today and for all that you're doing. And I'm so glad you didn't end up playing for the Blue Jays. <laughs> no, like it's like it, I think I'm in the right place right now. And thank you so much for the opportunity to chat and, and, and come on your show. Um, big fan of uh, really the way that you approach and deliver some amazing ideas and, and next generation thoughts on how to manage healthcare to uh, to your audience. So congratulations! Thank you for letting me be a part of it. 
My pleasure. So thank you so much. And we will talk again soon. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly, or if you'd like to leave any comments, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application. Just answer a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again. And we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.